Our sermon text for today is from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. You know this now, don't you? We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. And therefore, we make disciples who treasure Jesus of all peoples. And this is the part that we've been refining lately. These disciples are are people who worship God wholeheartedly with joy. These disciples are people who belong to Christ and thereby belong to one another. These disciples are are people who continually grow in grace and knowledge of God throughout their whole lifetime. These disciples are people who serve one another in love with the grace that God supplies. And these disciples... Go. These disciples, go make disciples in the neighborhoods and the nations, and thus the cycle repeats itself. You see that? So we exist to spread a passion by making disciples who worship, belong, grow, serve, and go. And this morning's sermon 
related to the purchase of the Bethlehem, or excuse me, the Bethlehem, I said it again, the Bethesda uh, property, Bethesda Missionary Baptist Church property, relates, it really relates, relates to all of that. But right now, at this moment, it relates most directly to go to our neighbors in love. Most of you know, but I'm going to review a little bit. Most of you know from our weekly pastor's letter or from the web links or announcements or the family meeting that we had a few weeks ago that, that the elders have submitted and... Uh, submitted a purchase agreement that's been accepted for the property belonging to Bethesda Missionary Baptist Church just west of us here on this block. The Bethesda Missionary Baptist Church was planted in 1889 out of the church planting efforts of First Baptist Church on the other side of downtown a few years after we were planted by First Baptist Church on the other side of downtown in 1871. The congregation is historic since it is the first black-led congregation in the city of Minneapolis. Though the buildings were built in the 60s, the congregation has a history that goes all the way back to 1889. And presently, the congregation's intention is to move their worshiping location to another place. So that's why they're selling it. The property's been on the market for over a year. And, uh, and actually, we were so busy, we didn't even think about it until about end of April. And it opened up, and we can say more about that in the family meetings and the Q&As. But the Bethesda congregation has expressed their enthusiasm upon receiving our offer, recognizing that we can expand and extend the ministry of the gospel for the next cycle of ministry years and years, Lord willing, to come. The property is made up of two structures, a church building and an apartment building, 15 units, and it has two parking lots. And I felt like it, I should explain the basics to you if you didn't know any of that. So now let me pray and uh, we'll move closer to the Good Samaritan and then think about how that impacts us at such a time as this. Father in heaven, there's, there's so much to say. So many aspects of this. You're calling on us. Your grace toward us. The particulars in this city right now and in our culture and in the neighborhood, the, the people movements coming in and out. And, and I have 53 pages in front of me. Not really. I have written 53 pages on this and I've got 10 to deliver right now. So Lord, lead me and guide me on what I should say and what I shouldn't say and what will be helpful and what won't be helpful. And in it all and through it all, I pray that you'd be glorified, your people would be helped and called and challenged and would trust you as we move forward, as you would lead us in clarity on this venture. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're really still in our Gospel of Luke series. We're just jumping ahead a few chapters to the parable of the Good Samaritan. And there, 
this conversation takes place between this religious lawyer, an expert in the Old Testament law. He holds a position akin to the the supreme court of the law of God. And he's approaching Jesus with a question because he wants to test him. Jesus has been teaching. Rumors are that you know, he teaches some strange things about the Sabbath and he hangs out with, with sinners and this lawyer's going to test him and so he approaches Jesus kind of like a Supreme Court justice talking to a small town county attorney. And he's thinking, this guy doesn't know anything. I'll, I'll give him a question. Verse 25. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answers the question with a question. I like the little, little joke from R.C. Sproul. He says, why is it in Jewish culture that they so often answer a question with a question? They joke it. Well, why not? That's the answer. <laughs> Jesus answers the question with a question. What is written in the law? How do you read it? The lawyer replies, verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus commends the the man. You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now first notice here, Jesus agrees with the lawyer's answer because it's biblically accurate. Jesus himself gave a very similar answer when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Remember? He said, love, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Throughout the Bible, the teaching is consistent. The teaching isn't that if we try hard enough to love God and hard enough to love our neighbors, then we will merit eternal life. Because we won't love God as we ought and we won't love our neighbors as we ought without sin only Jesus loves God as God ought to be loved and only Jesus loves people as they ought to be loved now both in the Old Testament and the New Testament the righteous are justified by faith Romans 1 17 and 4 3 rather This is what I see as consistent in both Testaments. Those who have come to know God through his covenant, received his love, will love other people. Love for God and love for neighbor goes together. The covenant love of God, uh, the covenant love of God works in a people to create a loving people. In fact, the Old Testament prophets over and over again indict the people of Israel for their lack of love for God by observing their lack of love for people. If they love God, they would love people, especially people in need. The Apostle John puts it this way. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So in other words, the reality of being loved by God and loving him in return is shown in our love for one another, in our love for our neighbors, especially to those in need. That's why the answer is correct. Now at this point in the passage, the lawyer wants to justify himself. See that there in verse 29? He wants to show that he's pretty good at this. Oddly, oddly, he doesn't ask, well, how do I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? He doesn't go knocking on that door. But he says, uh, well, you know, I'm going to go fishing for who's my neighbor, and Jesus is going to give me an answer of somebody that I already love, like my family, like my in-laws, like my fellow followers of Judaism, maybe the, the crabby guy at the butcher shop, and, and I'm going to feel good and justify. You see, he's fishing. He's wanting to justify himself in this question. So he's expecting to hear an answer from Jesus that he can go, I got that. And you know, it's not what Jesus provides him. Sidebar. You know, we give evidence that we don't understand the gospel when we seek to justify ourselves before God or before one another by what we have done. We, we just show that we don't get the gospel. We're not justified by what we have done. We are justified by faith in Christ Jesus. He has worked our justification for us by his perfections, by his death for us, for our forgiveness, by clothing us with his righteousness in order that we might walk in holiness and fullness of life. But we don't get it if we approach God with self-justifying prayers. God, I'll do this for you and then you do this for me. It's not the gospel. So Jesus isn't going to feed the lawyer's self-righteousness. He's going to show him that he's fallen short in both categories. He's fallen short in loving neighbor and therefore he's fallen short in loving God. What he really needs is forgiveness in Christ. What he needs is awareness of his falling short of his sin. What he really needs is the love of God poured out into his heart by the Holy Spirit through the gospel of Christ. So Jesus tells the lawyer the parable of the Good Samaritan in order to show the futility of the lawyer's attempt to justify himself and give him a bigger and grander and more glorious picture of the kind of compassion and mercy that God has for us as his people and he expects us to reflect in love for other people. Way bigger than just loving your mother-in-law. Way bigger. 
and I have a nice mother-in-law. A man was traveling alone, Jesus says, on the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho. The road is marked with turns and crags and is, was well known for trouble at that time. Some called it the bloody way. Jesus continued. The traveler, verse 30, fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Before too long, it seemed help was on the way because two religious leaders were coming upon the suffering victim. First, a priest comes down the road, and verse 32, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He saw, he passed by. And second, a Levite apparently walks right up to the man and looks down on him, and he too passes by on the other side. These people that you expect don't. These people are kind of like the lawyer. Don't. Now the travelers all alone again when along the, down, along the road comes a, a Samaritan. And y'all remember that in Israel at this time the sin of prejudice or partiality was most manifest between Jews and Samaritans. Jews hated Samaritans because of their ethnic and genealogical heritage and all the history that came from it. And Samaritans hated Jews because they had been so oppressed by them. We would call this sin racism, partiality, ethnic pride, prejudice due to ethnicity. And by the way, you know this manifests in every culture of the world. Don't let anyone tell you that their people group cannot be racist. That's me really upset. Talk about justifying yourself. Well, my people can't be racist because this sin of partiality is epidemic as a result of the fall. Jesus is poking right at it with this Samaritan coming down the road who's going to help a Jew. I can imagine some Samaritan saying, well, we can't be prejudiced because we were afflicted by the Jews. Baloney. So unexpectedly, the Samaritan didn't just keep walking by, didn't look the other way. He embraced the interruption to his travel itinerary and his ETA. Verse 33, he came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. Compassion. He bent down and began bandaging the traveler's wounds with whatever he had, I suppose. You know, I don't know, rip a sleeve or a cloth or a handkerchief. He cleansed his wounds with oil and wine that he had with him? You know, why is he carrying oil and wine? You know, maybe his, his wife needed some cooking oil and they were going to have a celebration and so he brought some wine. And love deployed those, that oil and that wine. 
into the purposes of serving this traveler. And then the Samaritan put the injured man on his own donkey, checked himself and the traveler into the inn and stayed overnight taking care of him. And when morning came, verse 35, the Samaritan said to the innkeeper, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Clearly above and beyond. Finishing the parable, Jesus looked at the lawyer and notice he changes the question. <laughs> Remember, the question is, who's my neighbor? Jesus changes the question to, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer replied, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. So Jesus changes the question from who is my neighbor to be the neighbor wherever you go. It's interesting, the lawyer wouldn't even say that word, the Samaritan. Be the neighbor wherever you go. I'm going to sum up some highlights and then move from the parable. So here in Luke 10... Jesus calls us and expects us as his covenant people to love our neighbors. This is a love that transcends even the most entrenched social barriers such as the Jew-Gentile divide. It's opportunistic. It moves toward need as it comes upon need, as it sees need. It responds to need nearby, therefore. It can be costly and expensive and inconvenient. And it's a love like God's in compassion and mercy. And of course, we can and should think individually about this parable, you know, how can I be this kind of a person? But I'm thinking of it corporately. How can we, like we, the family of Bethlehem, we as, a, as one thing, <laughs> how could we be a neighbor? You know, we who are called into this church family that meets right here, in East Downtown, Minneapolis, week after week after week, and we come and we pass people, neighbors, walking by. Live, we drive past their apartments. We, we move past their homes. Or, I don't know if you saw this morning, where am I? There's a person in a tent right there. Sidebar, <laughs> I wonder if one of you, just one of you, might fill up a cup of coffee and get a Danish or two and just go to the fence and see if anybody's in there, <laughs> if they're awake, if they're in there, 
Hey, would you like a cup of coffee? I'm from the church across the street. I see you. I'm not pretending I don't see you. I mean, the city is full of need. Many, many needs. Some are seen and some are unseen. The greatest need is for Jesus. If we are motivated and moved and empowered and there's grace in this text for us as a people, as a church, how much more good might be done in this city? How many more people might be helped? How many people might be loved? How many people might come to know Jesus? How might God be more glorified in this city as we see and as we contact in love and in need meeting and in mercy? I'm speaking for the elders when I say we believe God has called us to strengthen our neighborhood outreach. And as soon as I say that, I want to add some some other biblical teachings underneath that to give us confidence as we might do that. How many do I have? I think I've got four. I've got four. Number one. Remember, Jesus promised the power of the Holy Spirit to bear witness to him locally and globally. You know where I am, Acts 1.8. I love this verse because it's so comprehensive. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. It's promise language. You will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, your city. And Judea, the province. And Samaria, the hard place where most people don't want to go. And even to the ends of the earth. Jesus promises the power of the Holy Spirit for Jerusalem and Samaria. Therefore, for Minneapolis. Take heart. Number two, God has sovereignly given us our particular neighbors. Remember when Paul moved into Athens and he walked around the town and he he was actually appalled at the godlessness and he began to speak and he said this. This is Acts 17, 26. God made from every man Every nation of mankind, excuse me, I didn't say that right. God made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And then here it is. Having determined the allotted periods, God has determined the times when people live and the boundaries of their dwelling places. God has not only determined the times that people live, but the places where they live. And then Paul goes on to say, God did that in his sovereign mercy in order that, Acts 17, 27, they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And so I just climb into that passage and say, well, we are like Paul, aren't we? 
We move into a people. There are many unbelievers. God put those people there in that time, in that place, put Paul there at that time, in that place, in order that the people who don't know God would seek God, and how might they find him? Through Paul's proclamation of the gospel and through our proclamation of the gospel. God has sovereignly given us our particular neighbors and there are many of his people in this city who do not know Jesus yet and will be called and will believe. I wrote, way, I wrote up way too much about who our neighbors are, but let me give you a few highlights. I'll just give you the highlights. Um, just a reminder, you're just starting to think about neighbors all around us. Remember, each and every one of our neighbors has been made in the image of God, male and female. God created them. Oh, the image of God used to help me so much when I would walk back and forth up and down the alleys in Minneapolis as I went to the image of God. Fallen? I'm fallen too. Fallen? Image of God. Deserving respect and honor. Everyone in the image of God, singles, married, divorced, widowed, they each has gifts and graces and skills and abilities and creativity and accomplishments and joys and sorrows and, and brokenness and desires and yearnings. Did you know that within a, within a three-mile radius, I wonder, I wonder how you'd answer this. How many people live within a three-mile radius of this church? More than a quarter million. 275,000. 27% of those households live on an annual income below 25,000. So 27% below 25,000. 37% live on an income above 75,000. And this one, this one gets me. This is an opportunity, I think, to shape the next generation. Did you know, I'm still in the three-mile radius, that there are 39,000 children? 39,000! Under 14. Some are Christian, some are Muslim, some are Hindu, some engage in the occult, some practice witchcraft, some claim no religion. That's the rising category in all the demographics, the nuns. No religion. Our neighbors come from all over the world and notably from the 1040 window where most of the unreached people groups of the world live. And they live here across the street and down the block. And you know that our neighbors are ethnically diverse with a recent upsurge in the last 20 years of Africans and Hispanics. And some have given their lives to the GLBT lifestyle and are activists for that. Some for other causes. Some live in public housing. 
Some live in the new high-rise condominiums. I mean, that's the most visible, physical change I see in downtown is commercial and business is going down and residential is going up, which is interesting for a church because we're kind of into people, right? So residents are a great thing to be multiplying in our neighborhood. Some are employed, some are unemployed, some are underemployed, some struggle with day-to-day life, addictions and depression and some form of abuse, and some don't appear to suffer at all with the obvious needs. By all appearances, oh, they're just fine. But no, again, the greatest need everyone has is Jesus. So we intend with this Bethesda project to use it as a tool for serving our neighbors, for gospeling our neighbors in love as God gives grace. You know, and I think about that, you know, a fair question would be, you don't need another building to love your neighbors. And that's factually true. However, there's a use for some, for a building like that that's distinct from the church building. Uh, let, me, let me give you a, a par- parallel. I was in Ethiopia. I'm telling you, we drove out to the middle of nowhere to where Africa looks like on the nature show. You know, that just we're in a land rover going over things. We pass the tree where people worship the spirits and we come upon this, this mud church building that seats maybe 30 people. And I'm meeting with the church planting pastor and, and he's telling me that, well, we not only built the church, but we built the well. I thought, well, that's interesting. You built the church and the well at the same time. What do you need a well to do church for? Well, it's the place that we meet people. It's the place where we meet basic, real needs, people. So people come to the well, and it's a place of contact. That's how we're seeing this building, in particular as we use it for for outreach. It's a place of contact. It's a place where where our people, where we can have contact with our neighbors rather than just walk by. Third reminder here now. God has gifted each one of us. I I mean, this really makes me smile. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. We are the body of Christ and each of us has been gifted in particular ways with particular gifts and particular skills and particular personalities, and God has given us these gifts to be used for his glory. Most often, the way significant ministries get started, it's been true here in the past, I I presume it's true elsewhere, is not because, you know, the pastor says, let's do this. Let's start I could say something. I I don't want to say something. Uh, It's not that. But rather, most often it starts when God gives one or a few believers a sense of calling, a sense of vision for what could be. 
And that bubbles up and they speak it and it gets confirmation from others, from other believers, from people, pastors, elders, and it gets momentum and people, hey, let's get behind it. Then there's a, a stronger sense of confirmation and, and the resources are, are gathered and it gets going and it begins. That's how ministries get started. And, and whether they, well, they all start small, despise not small beginnings. And whether they grow big or not really isn't the issue because ministries, I mean, this guy's ministry happened on two days. Suppose and then he came back to pay the bill. The, the point isn't that it has to be some big lasting thing, although it could be. We've seen some of those come through. Like Hope Academy. But uh, the point is God has gifted you and me gifts, skills, heart, and uh, dream a dream. Dream a ministry dream and talk about it and see if others share the dream. And let's just see what God does. If that sounds fuzzy, it is. It is fuzzy. You know, I've worked with church planters. I think I've overseen 29 of them. All the visions are fuzzy. But what's amazing to me is that the basic vision with the basic doctrine put into a people happens. It has life. And it, it comes into existence and it, and it serves the Lord and blesses people and evangelizes. And God has gifted each one of you. So dream a dream. Dream a dream. Number four. God has promised future grace for us in this kind of ministry. God has promised future grace for us in this kind of ministry. You know, this deals with, oh, we're, who's sufficient for these things? We can't do this. Oh, my gosh. I almost preached from Isaiah 58 today, and I didn't. But it so lavishly promises God's future grace on his people when we give ourselves to needy people out of our worship of God. And another time, perhaps, I'll be able to preach the whole text, but let me just give you a flavor for it, and you can read this this afternoon. Isaiah 58. So basically, right in the middle of the text, or just read the whole thing, but the if then blessings come with this statement like this, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then there's all these thens. <laughs> this is future grace coming our way. If you pour out yourself for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, that's Isaiah 58, 10. And here are the thens. Then your light will break forth like the dawn. Then your healing shall spring up speedily. Then your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. Then your light shall rise in the darkness, and your gloom as the noonday. 
Then the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And then you shall be a watered garden like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. So what this is saying is that a piece of our healing, of your healing, a piece of your nearness to God, a piece of your restoration, a piece of your rescue from gloom might well be found as you give yourself away in love to other people and enjoy the nearness and satisfaction of God in the journey. I need to close. I want to praise God for the decades of local outreach and neighbor love that God has granted through Bethlehem really for the last 152 years. We didn't start this thing. (laughs) Jericho Road Ministries is alive and strong, meeting in the 1633 building and considering ways to move to this property should we purchase it. English as a second language is continuing. More tutors are needed. That would be another ministry that we could move into this this property. Salem Arts Exchange, I don't even know if you know what that is. It's weekly sewing classes to immigrant women. It's another ministry that could move into this property. Um, I spoke with Heather Elting Ballard of City Joy. This is our, our, our uh, neighborhood outreach, 501c3, about what could be. I'm going to just read you some of the things that she mentions, and I'll probably bleed a little of my own thoughts. She says, you know, what about, if God would grant us this place, what about a particular targeted outreach across the street? Come to our community building. I don't know what we'll call the building. I've been calling it the Bethlehem Center, Community Center. It could be called the City Joy Center. I don't know what to call it. But come here for fellowship, coffee. Um, we might define that. Seniors or mothers with young kids. This is, this is ministry dreaming yet to be done. Maybe we should make a time for police officers to come and rest and uh, talk with neighbors and hang out and build relationships that way. What about a, a site for tutoring, after-school tutoring or evening tutoring. I, I like this. Coaching a sport. I mean, coaches are rare and hard to find in the city of Minneapolis. And if you are like me and have had coaching experience, you know one way to... <laughs> it's very interesting. Uh, teach, teach life skills and teach kids about life is co- be their coach. This is a dream I've had for a long time. Ever since I saw it in Prague, my wife and I and a team from Bethlehem painted a big room. It's like a big gymnasium-sized room, like two-thirds the floor space of this and half the height. And Kathy and I were the only ones brave enough to paint the ceiling or dumb enough to paint the ceiling. And like two or three weeks after we finished painting it, the church planter in Prague, Mark Potma, sent us a picture of the Lego club, 200 kids doing Legos. I really like this idea, <laughs> and I can't do it. But maybe somebody out there loves Legos and knows all about the competitions that are spreading all around the country and probably skipping over Minneapolis. 
Oh, one of the campus outreach workers told me he works uh, on 41st in Bloomington for uh, a new uh, community organization that's teaching gymnastics to city kids because gymnastics has skipped the city of Minneapolis. And I said, what do you know about gymnastics? He said, I don't know anything, but I can teach a four-year-old how to do a somersault. So they put him on the early end. Reviving the salt ministry, the, the English language classes for Somalis and the other ESL classes. So bottom line, dream a dream. See the needs. Seek the Lord. Count on the Spirit's power. Trust God's sovereign providence in putting us here with our neighbors. Use your gifts and your skills and let's count on God's future grace in this journey. And let's pray and let's see what the Lord does as we seek to lean in to our neighbor love as a church people on this site in Minneapolis. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thanks so much for your word to us. (laughs) It's not lost on me that we are the wounded traveler. That's us. We're the ones beat up by sin and, and caught up in despair and in utter need. And by your grace, you have sent the Lord Jesus in the flesh to come and live and give his life for us, for our healing and restoration and reconciliation with you. And so I pray that your love might be poured out in our hearts all the more in a new expression or a revived expression or new expressions of neighbor love here through our people at Bethlehem. I pray this in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen.